<laughs> okay, well, we'll do we'll do what well, you I said. I don't know what we're talking about. So, oh, that sounds exciting. <laughs> you gotta listen. This could go either way. This could be a great episode or the most boring thing ever. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, our bi-weekly podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friend, Trisha in LA. Hi, I'm Hi. here, and it's sunny. Okay, and I think it's 50. I think. That, wow, um, really? I think it is actually. It's, it's very negative cold. 700 here. So don't tell me it's very cold. I want to know why. Okay, everyone. degrees. <laughs> I get a text from Trisha like two hours ago. And she's like, oh, uh, I'm going to sleep. It's like 5 a.m. in L.A. What were you doing all night? I know. I wish it was something hotter than what I'm about to suggest it was. But every January, there's this weird thing that happens in Australia where people hit a ball back and forth. And Australia time favors me on on the West Coast for a change. So, like, I was up watching a federal match. And then I was snarking on Twitter for a couple hours after. So this is tennis related. Wait, how does it favor you if you were up till like 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning? Because weirdly enough, when I go to bed, this is the funny thing about tennis in Australia. When you go to bed, like I would go to bed at like 11, I can often wake up. And depending on how late the matches run, I might actually wake up into another match still happening. <laughs> So I was like, I have a full night of sleep. And I wake up and there's still tennis. It's a love affair. Honestly, can I tell you that, though? It is a love affair. We know. With all the ups and downs, aside from, um, what's that thing that I like to read? Slash? Slash. Slash, this is like the most enduring thing in my life, right? Tennis. Wow. For a long time. Thank you. That's aside, great. Okay. Aside, aside from people, dear heart. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Because, you know, people, you know, things, you know, you things fall in and out of fashion. I remember I used to love ice skating. I haven't watched that in years. Oh, you used to love ice skating. Remember I used I to love about that. figure skating. You remember me and Lisa, we would yeah. go watch. You I, you really know, into I was really into figure skating, gymnastics even. You so know, Well, everyone's like into gymnastics when it's gymnastics time. <laughs> You know what I mean? But no one like follows it on the off season. Not no one. You know. Normal people. No, yeah. Kidding. Everyone's into gymnastics when it's happening. Same thing like everyone's into diving when it happens or swimming. And then we move on. Or basically you're saying we're just into the Olympics. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Every four years is enough for us. Every four years I discover, oh yeah, it's time to, time to reconnect to this diving thing. I, I don't follow it on off times or anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, no. remember when um we watched the marathon mm-hmm. like years ago, like three Olympics ago? We were at your mom's house and we were watching the marathon on TV. I think about this constantly because all we were doing for hours is watching people run and then having commenters, <laughs> commentators talk about them. And to this day, like twelve years later or whatever, I'm like, what was the appeal? Like, what we were just sitting watching that? Like, was people there nothing run. else on? Listen, listen, there was a point in time when I was visiting, this is, I'm going to blow up a spot. I was visiting my friend, Jem, and at some point in time, Jem turned to us in frustration and said, we have to leave the house. (laughs) 
our gazes were literally stuck on the TV watching, I don't know, curling maybe? Oh, Lord. Speaking <laughs> of which, are you going to watch the Winter Olympics? You know Don't what? They I, I, Haven't they ended? I don't even know. Oh my god, you gotta keep up. <laughs> you know what? It, it actually starts, and I was really considering booking a flight to go see. Justin. No, you weren't. Where are <laughs> they? So we, Japan? Yeah, just so we can watch it together. Um, I think that this they're Korea, if I'm not mistaken. Oh right. Oh, that'd be yeah. nice. Wow, it's weird that we're gonna go into the Olympics. Well, did you see? This is a new new thing. What? I saw that the Koreans are marching together, the North and the South. Koreans are marching together, and guess who's what? taking guess who's taking credit? Dennis Rodman, Trumpers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wait, what? Do you think they're seeing the big picture of having a united Korea and China being the massive power that it is, and what that would mean <laughs> for that region? Do you think they get that? <laughs> I know there's a lot of history in there that I'm just glossing over, but could you imagine if Russia, China? And India sat down to the table and said, let's just rule the world. What would exactly. we do? <laughs> what would we do? We'd be are like, we, well, that's half the population. Okay. Are we certain they're not doing that already? <laughs> Any day now, they're going to be like, huh. Huh. Wait a minute. I'm waiting for everybody to realize that a unified Korea with China as <laughs> the emerging superpower would be a really, really strange and wonderful world. Yeah, that's going to be very interesting for our children's children. I'm just yeah. kidding. Not only are yeah. not having children, but they're not going to be around long enough. This is really the last generation. Wrap it up. Oh my gosh, you're horrible. Um, <laughs> but this, um, yeah, so the Olympics are coming up and I'm really thinking about where I can go watch them because I really enjoy it. And I like to sit on my ass and watch the Olympics all Winter Olympics? Olympics. You know what? I mean... Figure skating is the gateway drug, but then I'm sitting down and then I'm watching. And the next thing I know, I'm going to be watching curling. So, <laughs> and I'm going to be watching bobsledding for the first time because I'm going to watch the Nigerian team. You Oh, you know what I want to talk to you about? Because uh, sure. we're in winter uh, figure skating and winter Olympics. So I have not seen Itanya. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend about it and he was giving me some black history as far as this black figure skater who one, didn't give a fuck. And two, did like a very dangerous band backflip. Sorry, Bonali. Yes. What's her name? Sorry, sorry, Bonali. She's French and yes. she didn't give a shit. Uh, well, she she was she was notoriously punished by the skating administration. Because this is, I mean, this is, let's just, let's wait, just wait, say wait. This. Give some context to people. Listening. Okay. There's always this battle between whether they're going to reward the technically proficient skater or the really artistic skater. It's, it's which, often rare for them to be fully combined, right? Which brings us to Surya Bonali. Surya Bonali and also um, Tanya Harding. Mm-hmm. Tanya Harding, in many ways, and Surya Bonali were always appreciated for their technical prowess, well, their ability to do jumps. Everyone knows who Tanya Harding is, but Surya Bonali was a black French figure, French skater, figure skater who was technically very, very, very good. But she was black. She was athletically mm-hmm. built. And people said a lot of the things about her that they say about the Williams sisters nowadays, which is like, well, her skating is great, but I don't know if she, her, you know, her finesse and her whatever. And she didn't look like an ice princess. What's more is that there is a move that is banned by the United Federation of Skating. I made that up, whatever they're called. And it's where you're skating and then you do a backflip on the ice which looks extremely dangerous, but she does it and she does a split 
while she's flipping backwards and lands on one skate. Um, and then holds her leg up in the yeah. back. It's a, and then continues skating, making eye contact with every motherfucker in the place going, what? What? They didn't like her. And they they just, like Trisha saying, they just didn't really reward her very well. What Tanya Harding's story and what they have in common is, first of all, is the is the desire to always downplay the technical achievement of the skater, you know, the technical proficiency of the skater. Because one of the things that Tanya Harding did was like she was doing, um, I think it was a triple axel in, in um, women's figure skating and women just didn't do that jump. It was, it's just a very difficult jump. Well, so that was something that, that they, they were rewarded. Is it that they're downplaying the technical aspect or the fact that they want the sport to have a particular image is the thing. But, but it I is, think, it, which is, which is both. Really fits the idea what they want it to look like. So it doesn't sure. matter how technically proficient you are. I mean, this is the same thing with the Williams sisters in tennis. You know, there are these thin, cute, blonde, white girls who aren't as good as the Williams sisters, but those girls get more endorsements. They get more attention. For some reason, their matches get televised, like in a way, like they're not really all that, but they look the part. And I think that's the thing. So I don't, I don't know if they're downplaying the technical part as much as they're just raising up like the image part. Well, I think, but part it's part and parcel of the same thing in their minds. Right. And that's what allows them to do it. That's what gives them the rationale because what they'll say is this person is a technically proficient skater, but they're not a complete skater. That's always, that's, uh, that's, that's the language. That's code really. Cause that's the language. <laughs> the code is that because in, in many ways, that's one of the things that I think is really important and valuable about watching I, Tanya, if you do get a chance to watch it audiences to see the role of the United States figure skating tenant, Tennis Association in how the United she States was tenant tennis skating. We're I'm talking excuse, about sorry, skating. skating skating sorry same yeah sorry yeah it's like you have the official you know the official association for the sport is that yeah. at many at many points in time i i looked at it and i thought to myself they could have embraced tanya and they could have actually allowed her to not not that she wouldn't have been connected to sort of the dark side but i think she would have been less likely to be because if she had had more support monetarily advertising dollars all those other things she might have been less willing to align with somebody who was going to try to get her money i mean there there are points in time where she couldn't even afford her costumes and you know it was a lot for, you're wishing for a different kind of system i mean it's deeply classist and yes while you say what, what you say is true but it just wasn't going to happen given the current configuration. You know, they weren't, well, they, you could have done better with support. But like I said, they had an idea of who they want to represent that sport, who they want to yes. put in like, the bumper commercials for the Olympics. And it's not white trash Tanya Harding. It's not black athletic Surya Bonnelly. It's pretty, you know, dainty Nancy Kerrigan. And, and that's, that's just that. I don't, you know, that's just not a figure skating thing. I think that comes across in a lot of different media platforms and, well, do you, I mean, that's what's really ironic about the Itania thing, actually, and even the Soria thing. I mean, if you take out sort of the race aspect of it for Soria Bonali, right? If you think about it, Tanya represents, quote unquote, I mean, now this is the interesting thing, right? Because this is a different time and place. She really represents what you, what people fantasize about what real America is, right? Working class, pulls herself up by her bootstrap, literally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, she uh, is ice the- Ice skating um, straps, whatever. Yeah, you know, she's the American dream presented raw, right? And that 
they were not willing to let her have her moment. I mean, so if there were any, if there are any sort of slight sympathies that people have for Tanya Harding or had for Tanya Harding, it was a little bit of that at the time, was recognizing that she really was a bit of an outsider and she was a bit of a rebel. You know, she's she was like skating to rock and roll music. Her hair always looked undone. She was always a little bit unkempt. <laughs> I can't believe we're laughing that she was poor. That's who we are now. I mean, I'm not <laughs> laughing that she was poor, but it's amazing how much we love white poor people in this country. They're held up in such esteem in a sort of way. But yet you have this wonderful story of a person who was poor achieving her dream. <clears throat> and the American public or the American advertising public had no time for it. The times are different back then. I wonder now... I wonder now how she would sell. Yeah, because Blake Shelton's the sexiest man alive. White mediocrity yeah. is at its peak with True. a president who doesn't know what he's doing. Who knows if if this was a similar sort of thing? Not necessarily Kerrigan and Harding because they're old now, but if there was another young white trash girl from <laughs> nowhere, you know, Plainsville, the, the middle of the country, versus a you know a girl who's been practicing. She was four from L.A. I wonder how that would play in today's media. I bet it would be different. Yeah. My sense of it is that it's probably a bit different. Or and I'm just being cynical. Uh, you know what? I don't know. You know what? I don't know because you know what? I mean, in a post Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan world, because figure skating was never really the same after that. After that, it experienced tremendous viewership, tremendous viewership. And there was this real sort of like. Well, there's a Jerry hunger. Springer vibe to it now. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there was this like, <laughs> and there was this real sense of like the media making machinery that was behind it. So yeah. I, I'm wondering now in like this current media age, would we really understand maybe also just with niche groups, maybe like the pro Tanya's would have had like a say, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I, I it's hard for me to say anymore. It feels like they're, it feels like it's harder to package one type of skater and sell them now it feels like you have to kind of create niches for for people don't you think like you couldn't just do this monolithic like specifically you know? about skating i don't I, I don't have an opinion i don't know or just no, like in I general right? every four years so i <laughs> i know but in, even in general don't you feel like i feel like multiple people hold um the public's attention by just sort of like appealing to need to niche groups right so you've today. got like uh today it, what you mean? Though, i think you can garner a tremendous amount of attention but our attention span so short, people are, they love you, then they're done with you. It's like the one hit wonder has fully evolved. Like you burn super bright and then you burn out really, really fast. So but I then you also, you have the ability to control their access to you now, right? Whereas before, like using even the Tanya example or this, you couldn't, you didn't know her story as well as you could now. That that cuts, you know, both so ways. she could sell it, right? But that cuts both ways because you know more of the story. It's people now. People are going to have stronger opinions mm. because there's more information out there. There's more information being misreported and misrepresented, and the way that the internet works and our marketing works. Well, the way marketing's always worked is get an emotional reaction from you, but now that's happening in real time at lightning speed. So I don't know. It's it's interesting. I don't know. Today, it, it could really go either way. Yeah, I don't know how I don't know how um, resonant her story would be, but you know, I'm I'm really happy that you have discovered Soria Bonali. She was a she was a tremendous talent back in the day when we were all. Well, I, that was when I was really into skating. And to be honest, I'll be honest. Oh my god, this is so brutal for me to admit out loud. Is that I always found her technically proficient only though. <laughs> well, I I watched the clips, and 
No, you're right. I mean, given what we know of skating and the, 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 the way the sport is, I can't say that her stuff was very pretty. Yeah, it was very... It, it wasn't very pretty, nope. but it got the motherfucking job done. It like, did. you know I, what I mean? Like, if you were like, figure skating is doing a triple axel and then doing a sow cow and then doing whatever whatever <laughs> these things are, then check, 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 check. But after you see it, you're like, well, that was great, but I wanted to be entertained. And that's she the thing that she's missing. The, she needed to connect the dots. I mean, figure skating is more than the jumps, you know? I mean, because listen, for quite a long time, we also had an African-American tom- um, talent in Debbie Thomas. And she was exactly what the administration wanted. She was exactly what the tennis, um, excuse me, what the skating association wanted, which was, you know, beautiful lines, uh-huh. good, at, good at her jumps, really upbeat, friendly personality, all of those things. She was exactly the, the kind of African-American you wanted. I think she was in, wasn't First. she was in, she was in medical school. Oh my God. You don't even want to know. Cause you know what, what, what ended up happening to her? Uh-huh. She ended up on an um, Ayala Van Sant six year life. Oh, is that when Ghana like is like laughing and then suddenly leans forward and screams in your face? Not on my watch. That show, exactly those okay. kinds of shows. The only thing about that show, she ended up she ended up in a pretty um, abusive relationship. Oh, come on, yeah, it was really sad. But what was and it was it's weird because in contrast to sort of maybe the more kind of radical arm of say like um, skaters, she was really conservative and she was everything they wanted, but then follow her 10 to 10, 10 to 20 years later. It was sad to see. It was very sad. That's a bummer. Thanks for taking I know. that note. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just goes to show you though, that the media representation is never, yeah. it's never the full story. We should uh, post some videos of Saria Bonnelly up uh, so people can take a look. I was really interested to find out about her. I just, I thought she was such a badass. And now she coaches in America somewhere. I'm sure. Like somewhere her talent would make sense. East from the West for me, somewhere in the middle. Okay, so that was one topic, the Winter Olympics and Saria Bonnelly that just kind of happened. But I think there was something I wanted to talk about. And it was just something I was thinking about in the shower, which is where everyone has their best thoughts. You remember very special episodes of sitcoms, yes? Yes. And maybe this is a generational thing now. I know uh, younger people listen to this podcast. But back in the day, the sitcom plot would revolve around a particular issue, like Mm -hmm. uh, domestic violence was a big one in the 80s. Kidnapping was a big one in the 80s. Um, Yes. Drug use. You know, Nancy Reagan famously showed up on different strokes (laughs) during the Reagan presidency (laughs) and so woodenly delivered her one line. I was thinking, I in my mind, I remember on 90210, Kelly had an episode at a sleepover where she revealed that she had been sexually assaulted and like mm-hmm. the camera like is in and then she talks about that whole process and it's a very special episode i can't recall any special episodes after that like in in media like after the early 90s we just gave up on that kind of moral education at least coming from like large entertainment conglomerates mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 and there was no more um, after school specials, which was a thing that ABC used to run, uh, like at three or four o'clock, um, which was sort of like a moral fable starring children. It was like re- um, not animated; it was real life. And I just, I just wanted to throw this out to you: Why do you think we stopped that? Like culturally, why did we stop the very special episode? First of all, I'm much more comfortable remembering the afternoon episodes. They were actually called after school specials. Yes, ABC after school specials. It, I love them. I, I, I'm really connected to them because I think 
like I would come home and they would often be right like in right in the sweet spot. But if I'm not mistaken, I think those were killed by Oprah in the sense that I remember oh, Oprah, well, Oprah becoming, you know what I mean? Oprah, Oprah sort Oprah of took and... over that time slot and that, and you know, Oprah at that time were all very special episodes in a certain way, right? <laughs> as like, as like a genre. But that's all that, but then that's the same thing. There's yeah. something about Oprah was educating people and all those uh, talk shows were educating people about all of that shit. Like, mm-hmm. you know, don't do drugs because you're going to end up like this weirdo on the stage. Like, don't do this. Like, you know, these people are gay and uh, we people have, people have feelings about that. And you're right. Oprah's the same thing. Oprah's the same thing. Oprah but didn't I kill it. F- she continued it until she didn't anymore. Until she's like, what's Tom Cruise doing? And then that is the <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, you know what? I think casually people, people really connect the special episodes to the Reagan presidency, which is when we had sort of platform well, that's issues. That's when they were happening. Yeah, but I mean, but but think about sort of think about other aspects of that. That was like the dare. That was like the say no to drugs. I mean, those were um, the president's fitness program. Remember, so it's like there was these like sort of very public platforms around sort of social issues where it was important for you to um, educate kids in these very like heavy laden ways, right? But then I remember at the ru- very like. Heavy. Very, very heavy, but you, but you remember, I remember, I think, I think those sort of started to go away a little bit. They started waning because I don't remember if you know, remember that was part of the selling of like something like Seinfeld was that we were going to be about nothing. We're not going to learn anything. We're not going to teach anything. So that was the nineties because the Cosby was kind of every the, third episode was also was also special. The was late eighties, yeah. But so I think it was an eighties piece that really became. um quickly became really a staid way of telling stories. I think, it, and and then the 90s kind of emerged with these sort of like, like I, I remember Seinfeld very specifically and people talking about it in contrast in some ways to the idea of a special episode, which is there's never going to be a special episode on the Seinfeld. It's just not the way we're going to do shows anymore. It was become, it's like, and so I, I don't know, like I feel like the death of it became, a part of the '90s where it was just like mm, we're not going to communicate so what that was it naively. About, so what was it about the '90s that we just decided? Well, let's. Get, the kids are on drugs. They're all going <laughs> having sex. They're all having abortions. <laughs> Fuck it. Like what? But you know what's so interesting? It's actually an advertising term. Did you know that? I mean, isn't everything? <laughs> no, but I mean, but. Well, because actually, because if you look up the term very special episode, this is what they'll say about it. They'll say very special episode is an advertising term originally used in American television promos to refer to an episode of a sitcom or drama which deals with a difficult or controversial social issue. The term peaked in the 1980s. So, so was, it, <laughs> was it Seinfeld that killed it? Because then they made the point that the show is about nothing and it was so wildly successful. They were like, oh, we don't have to do these very special episodes. I'm just, I mean, I think there was a little bit of that, don't you? Or, or we became, or we began to see consumers really differently in the sense that we had to integrate complicated topics into shows. We could, it, it, we couldn't afford to make them be so nakedly like obvious. When did we take children off the table? Like what we do you all, mean by that? We, and maybe it's because I was younger back then. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious if anyone younger than the age of like 28 or 30 is even aware of what we're talking about because they grew up in the 90s. So I think they, they missed all of this. Mm-hmm. But there was so much 
programming and censorship around what kids could and couldn't do, what times of days that things could happen, what could happen on TV, what couldn't happen on TV. Now, I understand entertainment is wildly different. Back when I was growing up, there were four networks, you know, Fox being the new one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was just not a lot of variety for stuff. Yeah. I guess what I'm thinking is like, was it some economic shift where studios decided that this wasn't making the money anymore, they moved away from it? Or was it a cultural shift where we decided sort of like, we sort of like agreed that, you know, moral education, I guess it's the same thing. It's cultural and economic. When was it decided that moral education was no longer going to make money? Because that's know. both consumers and producers. Everyone decided, like on both sides, the consumers decided these shows are no longer important to us. Or pr- the producers decided these shows no longer get people interested. They no longer interest our advertisers. It's just, it seems to me that it was a kind of a sudden shift that happened right around the time of the Clinton presidency, like the first term. Because by the time the second term rolled around, we we're done with very special episodes. Like, and nowadays, there, I, there aren't any. Well, you know what? This interesting. Interestingly enough, I just kind of went back a little bit in my memory because I remember there used to be something called the Family Viewing Hour, right? And this was actually like a product of the '70s, which was the expectation that you had to have family-friendly programming between like eight and nine o'clock. That was like right? s- no, it was seven. like eight and nine o'clock like in the, the evening. Yeah, okay. but in traditionally, that's the timing. It was 8 or 9 o'clock, which is actually when most of those shows remember. Even if you look at NBC, Cosby Show, it's like family hour. That was supposed uh-huh. to be where you could unite and get together with your family, right? And uh-huh. apparently, actually, that became like a bone of contention and controversial. So that was sort of done away with, this notion that you had to do family viewing hour. It was declared un- unconstitutional. And so I'm wondering if actually the very special episode wasn't in um, reaction to that time period being declared sort of like unconstitutional. So then, okay, if you're going to have this hour, we can't we can't necessarily give you the whole hour anymore. But what may, was it? Or, it was seen as restricting free speech. Yeah. And so, um, so now, you know, <laughs> isn't That's that interesting, interesting right? Well, also, I mean, I you brought up the Telecommunications Act of 1992 earlier. 92, 94. I think it was 94. But okay. I mean, really, this is this is actually like a Federal but, Communications Commission decision was to yeah. actually. The FCC decided that there was such a thing as family hour. And that was deemed un, unconstitutional to some degree. And then what then what then was put on the table was then you could voluntarily offer this, you know what I mean? It was, it was kind of a compromise. Okay. Well, it was not, le- you're not legally required to do it anymore. Oh, I but see. Now you would they voluntarily legally to do it. Fa- family. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, you all hate it, right? You're like, ah! <laughs> well, I just think, I mean, the, I just can't believe the thought they'd get away with that. Like that's like legally you must. That's well, that's, apparently like doing a little bit of scrubbing of history. Like some apparently, Russian state TV bullshit. No, apparently this was something that people looked around on on American television in like the 1970s, like just as we were young, 1974, apparently they looked around and was like, okay, there's too much going on. There's too much violence on TV, really. And um, and then 1975, the the chairman of the FCC promised to adopt um, family viewing hour in response to sort of criticism of the the content that was on TV at the time. (laughs) You know, I mean? Okay, so this comes right back to my question, right? Mm-hmm. 
when did that stop being imperative? I, I'm not saying I want it back, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I'm, I, it's just a sheer curiosity how we moved so far away from there. Now we, you know, we prop the kids up when it has to do with drugs or abortion or sex or homosexuality or whatever. We always say, won't someone think of the children? But I do remember a time in history where I feel like that's when it came to entertainment, mm-hmm. we thought about kids a lot, like a lot. And And looking back, it's not just because I was a kid at the time. Like just thinking about the restrictions, especially on broadcast television. Oh, you know what also might have you know what might might also be related? Think of this is the emergence of children's TV. Because what it because remember, these were sort of this was also important for sort of like the big the big networks, NBC, uh, ABC, I'm and CBS. We, I'm embarrassed we got this far into the conversation. Before, yeah, but think <laughs> about it, right? Because You're right. You would think I mean, at that point in time, first of all, the family viewing hour becomes seen as um as kind of um, an attack on free speech on some level, right? The the uh, when it's when it, when the state demands that you exactly. produce content, yes, yeah, right. But I mean, but so in some ways, you know, even though the FCC's decision was struck down, and then the three networks, I guess, apparently voluntarily decide that they would still do it. I think what you ended up having was competition in terms of Nickelodeon and children's TV, and then once you have children's TV. I think you could abandon the idea that television needed to serve kids because you actually had specific channels for kids. And so I think, I think that's one of the reasons why you sort of move away from the family hour model. And I think the family hour model led to very special episodes because in some ways those were supposed, those were meant to be sort of teachable episodes. You could be careless any other time. But the mm. very special episode was meant to teach you about very concrete social issues, right? Um, <laughs> Wait, let me tell you my let me tell you my favorite one. Are you oh, ready no. for this? Which oh, one? Because I think I have one too. I've, I've searched for it and I cannot find it. In uh-huh. the early eighties, there was a, sh- uh, a program, right, about uh-huh. this guy. He was this white guy. He was a family man. You know, mm-hmm. I think he had 1.2 or 2.4 kids. He had a loving wife. And then he passes by in a video game arcade. No! He goes in and like he puts a quarter in the machine and he starts playing Pac-Man. And he's like really into it. <laughs> next thing you know, episode. next thing you know. <laughs> He's late to work, you know, he's not coming home for dinner, you know, he's irritable and his him and his wife are fighting. He doesn't spend time with his kids. He's putting more and more quarters into the machine. And then he loses his job and his wife leaves him. <laughs> <laughs> no, that didn't happen. Get ready. And then he's like destitute and he's like <laughs> he's like destitute. And you see him like walking down the street. And he sees like two or three black kids like playing one of those handheld Pac-Man games. Mm-hmm. And he comes up to them like a junkie. He's like, hey, uh, I'll, I'll give you a dollar if you let me play. And like the black kids, like they all like trade glances. And then it like fades to black. And it's like his body was found. <laughs> no, that never happened. <laughs> I swear to God. Uh, Please, uh... anyone out there, if you can find what I'm talking about. There's a cash prize. I have been looking for it for 35 years. I cannot. This is a real thing. I did not make it up. I think my very special episode was actually more dramatizing that. The very special episode was Different Strokes. Oh, I know which one. I think they call it, what is it called? The Bicycle Man? Remember when they were trying to molest the boys? 
And it, I don't think he ever did it, but it was like this weird like I suggestion have, that you know he, he did do it. He did do it, which is why I was so fucking freaked out. And it was a young black boy. Yeah, and I lived in a white neighborhood. It freaked me the fuck out. Yeah, it was really, it was really Dudley. Dudley, yes, yes, yes. In the, in the episode, uh, Arnold and Dudley. They, the guy who repairs bicycles yes. and runs the bicycle shop invites them over to his house and is getting increasingly creepy until he suggests that the boys take a bath. Mm-hmm. And like Arnold leaves, but Dudley doesn't. You know, the guy gets Dudley in the bath and, you know, they cut away from everything. But yeah, it, it's not right. implied that like the guy, you know, the police show up or whatever. I was so creeped out. Ugh, I was so creeped out and terrified. Which I guess is the point, right? Yeah, the whole point is that because actually that's what was so compelling about the very special episode is because it was a it's a safe world for you normally, right? And then when they make something bad happen to a character that you've loved and you've come to love, then it's 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 even more traumatizing. It really hits it really hits home. Oh, that so, was yeah. at the time on different strokes when Kimberly almost gets raped in the basement. Mm-hmm. Do you remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. That was terrible. Family Ties had a few, I think, but Family Ties, oh, I remember the one with the, the drunk Hanks uncle. One. The drunk Tom uncle. Hanks. Yeah. yeah. The drunk it was uncle. Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> when he slapped uh, Michael J. Fox across the room, like bitch slapped yeah. him across the room. Oh, there was also that. one. There was also one where Alex's friend dies in a car accident, I think it is. Um, oh, that rings a Yes. Bell. And he, and they, and then. There was also Facts of Life. Facts of Life had a few. Facts of Life when Natalie got raped, dressed yeah. like Charlie Chaplin. Yes. Or she got attacked. <laughs> did they ever say it was rape or was it like real? Like, I, don't I think they never really I have suggested to say it, though. Yeah. Look at us discussing these episodes in detail some 30 something years later. They, because you know what? It, really it, it res- did have an impact. It resonated. I mean, actually, I don't know if it was useful. I think what it really suggested to me at the time, in my own sort of naive recollection, was the world was a scary place. Because what they did was they took a sort of traditional sitcom, which is really sanitized and clean, and then they bring this darkness into it. And it was actually more traumatizing. I don't know if it was educational, but it was definitely memorable. Let's say that. It was definitely, it it was notorious. (laughs) It was notoriously (laughs) memorable. I don't know if I learned anything other than bad things will happen to you constantly yeah constantly or in a weird or what about the one with who was it as well blair and her mentally challenged cousin on facts of life uh jerry yes jerry look at yeah. jerry. <laughs> i'm telling you it's like a memory trace <laughs> oh my god i just looked up a list of the top 10 and wow mostly one most of the ones that we uh, mentioned are on the list the number one one, which I don't remember, it was an episode of Punky Rooster. Do you know what it is? Yes. I've never seen it, but I've read about it, where all, Punky and all of her friends die. No, you know what? It was actually related to one of one of your signature childhood memories. What? It was about Adam Walsh. It, it's called Urban Fear, which I don't remember. And I used to watch um, Punky Rooster, me, but it's actually about that. It really was quick, about just, just in wrapping this up, because you brought up Adam Walsh. Adam Walsh was a pivotal moment in my life. Adam Walsh was a um, boy in in Florida who mm-hmm. was kidnapped in a department store. It's hard to conceive this now if you are younger than 30. But there was a time when kidnapping of kids didn't really get the kind of attention that it mm-hmm. does now. Mm-hmm. And Adam Walsh was the first high-profile kidnapping. He was white. He was like six or seven or eight. He was young. 
Um, he's cute and he just disappeared. You, you may know that his father, John Walsh, went on to do America's Most Wanted and become a real crusader in this way. And he really pushed it to the forefront. That's when we started the National Registry for Missing Children, came mm-hmm. out of that. And it impacted me because I think Adam Walsh would have been my age now if he was alive. So we were the same age when he got kidnapped or a year older or younger. Oh, fun fact. A couple of years ago, I drove past that mall. Mm-hmm. Abandoned. They it's never built crazy. anything there again. Yeah, it's because just still it was, abandoned. Yeah, it was a traumatizing memory. Um, but I mean, weirdly enough, I, I don't even know why the writer connected that. But I think apparently the the Punky Bruce episode was actually a, a, about a strangler. But Jesus. and so I don't know. As we recounted them, I'm not sure if they were good or bad. To be honest. I don't know if that's a good model. I don't know. It's a bit heavy-ended. Like, I would say that it probably wasn't a good model. I think I learned a lot about the badness of the world. And although I think that's valuable for kids to be able to evaluate safety and risk, Mm -hmm. I'm not certain that was the best way to do it. I'm I'm not certain how we're doing it now or if we're doing it at all. So... Maybe well, this know, was like a push. Like this is just something that doesn't need to be done because it's happening in other corners or should be happening in other corners and not through like major entertainment conglomerates, well, like I said earlier. Well, you know what's strange about it though is that because what you end up with, and I think I think actually, even though we lightly touch on it, I think this is actually what killed the, that um, special episode is really the emergence of children-specific TV. Yeah, right? I think that's, I think in wrapping this up, I think we should totally... I remember when Nickelodeon started. Mm-hmm. I remember um I remember when kids specific TV networks began. Yeah. And I think that's really it. They took the pressure off the broadcasters. The kids their eyes were moving to other na- networks and so they pulled in the 18 to 34 year olds. Uh that that's probably really what killed it, but I guess uh, and But I guess it means I don't know time. anything about it though. That means that but we also, we now know we don't have access to it because I don't yeah, watch. I watch TV. children. I watch so children's do, programming just because of my proximity to kids and working with kids, uh, it's not very special in the same way. Sometimes hmm. stuff will come up, but it's not. I feel like in the eighties, it was really focused on trauma. That is traumatizing mm-hmm. the viewer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> nowadays, it's much more contextualized in the show, and it doesn't get the kind of moral treatment and nice red bow at the end of the episode if they talk about anything at all, and if they do, it's like totally softball stuff and no one gets moralized. So it's, it's interesting that we don't, we don't approach those topics the same way. What I want to, you know, we don't get a lot of chatter on Facebook, but I would love for people to post like their very favorite special episode. If you remember, if you have any that you remember, I would love to see a list of what people remember. And if you can find that Pac-Man one where Pac-Man destroys his life, please Oh my God, I cannot believe. You know that what? That was, was such a, it's so moralistic. That was, I mean, that's also the other thing about it is just how obviously moralistic it is. Yeah, it was, so, but that's why uh, I, remember, like, I was little. Uh, I remember the time being like, let me get this straight. <laughs> even, are you telling me this man ruined his life? <laughs> You know what? Also, maybe it was maybe it was also the increase of the increased sophistication of studying children, recognizing that this kind of like overlaying like moralistic tone might not be the most effective way to communicate information. You know what I mean? I mean that the 60s, also was... the 60s and the 80s saw like a boon in child psychology. So I don't know. anyway. 
Anywho, we would love it, actually. Please, we're going to encourage you. I think what we're going to do is we're going to post our most memorable episode, and then you... I'm gonna, uh, let's post links. You. Let's set a, set a thread, and then I'm going to tag people to come and put the link. Find it on YouTube. <laughs> your favorite, I'm sure it's out there. Let's see it. Let's, let's relive the trauma together. Oh, let's- brutal. <laughs> brutal. I love All it. Right. Okay, well, let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha, what do you got? Hi, I've got this really great book that I picked up over the Christmas holidays, and it's called How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Kambahi River Collective. And it's edited by Kianga Yamata Taylor. I'm not necessarily that familiar with Kianga, but she is actually credited with a book called From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation um, from 2016. But what's great about this book is that it's just a series of interviews. So it's actually really, really readable. And it's basically just interviewing a group of women who formed a collaborative in uh, a collective in the 1960s and called themselves black feminists um, because when they were doing work in the sixties, they didn't find, they couldn't find a home with the black nationalists because the men were sexist and they couldn't find a home with the feminists or the white feminists because they were racist. And so they were like, you know what, we can work with different groups as needed, but we need to create our own space for ourselves because we have specific things that we need to tackle for as black women. And so it was, um, it's basically just an interview about that period in time that these women were together. And there, um, there are a couple of them, several of them are sisters, actually. They are Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, Demata Frazier, and Black Lives Matter co-founder, Alicia Garza, and a historian and a activist named Barbara Ransby. What I loved about the book was it was just really, um, it gave me an opportunity to step into the term feminism Mm. or feminist, because right now I feel really uncomfortable with the label because I I see so many problems with the movement, partially because I think it's, it's got, it's a white woman's face in some Mm. ways. And I feel like if you're going to really do the work, deep work, I think it has to be I think it has to be poor women. I think it has to be poor women and women of color, because I think those are people who are strongly victimized by this system and are like at least ready to be combative with the system. Right. (laughs) So so it was interesting. It was interesting to read a book about women who kind of stepped into that term at that period in time. But it's great. It's just um, it's really readable. The 60s? The the 60s, right in the 60s. What's really interesting about it, actually, there's this really great part where one of the women define what they meant by identity politics. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really fascinating because she said, you know, at the time, what, what we meant by identity politics was the notion that your identity had some political ramifications. And so being sensitive to the multiple identities that you hold and how that might impact your politics. So it's, it doesn't, it, I feel like that's a really different way that we can, that we, that we conceive of identity politics now, you know, the people push back on it. And it's this kind of like, Oh no, this is like a separatist kind of thing. But she says when she and her group talked about it, it was recognizing multiple identities existing in a space and letting that inform the, your political work. 
right? So recognizing mm-hmm. that you were having lived experiences in many, in, in like at the intersection of many things. For Black women, it was racism and sexism. And for some of them, I think for them later, it will it was also homophobia because some of them were lesbians. So it was like heteronormative things as well, right? But then also for them is the recognition that, that many of them were also um, socialists. Mm-hmm. And so also it was rejecting capitalism. So that, you oh, know, so it's all, they, I know, right? They were just, they were doing, they were doing it all. They were doing the most. The most. <laughs> I was going to say, they were doing, they were doing all of it. Like, not were. even the most, just all of it. It was all of it. Shit. You know, so it actually kind of reminds me of the recommendation I, I gave you uh, like a couple weeks back, the Angela Davis one. Cause I mean, mm. it's, I don't read a lot of anti-capitalists. Do you know, because I think I think the U.S. Does such, did such a good job of like frightening people off about any of those things, communist, yeah. communist, socialist, all of that. Out of the capitalist mindset, it's really hard Ex- to get out of it. Exactly. But what's really interesting is that Black feminist thought historically is really anti-capitalist. It just is, and so because they they believed everything in the system was flawed, right? So they actually believed in somewhat the destruction of capitalism. And so the idea is that we are not free until Black women are free, ultimately. That's how you judge everything. Like, if Black women are living lives, good lives, then your society is, o- is working okay, because that means that sexism and, and racism are being tackled in, in substantive ways, right? Black lesbian women, because that means Even that, all that shit. Right? Add that onto it. Women. Yeah. Yes. Poor trans yeah. Black women. If you can see poor trans Black women walking down the street... Living their best being lives. murdered, uh, discriminated against, then then you're right. Then we're in a different society. It's an interesting, it was that. an interesting pitch, right? So yeah, so that. it's great. So it's a good book to interview. It's a good, it's a good read, really fast. I highly recommend it mm-hmm. for anyone who's just like Say curious again. What's about it called? that. It's called How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Kambahi River Collective. And I'll let you all figure out why they call themselves K- Kambahi River. It's related to something that Harriet Tubman did. Mm, stop giving it away. Check it I out. Know. What about you? What are you recommending? I- well, I'm not recommending. I I am taking inspiration from you, and I am anti-recommending something that I saw recently. So, so I I haven't felt very strongly about anything I've seen, read, heard, or experienced lately. So I think I'm just gonna just just shit on something that I did see. So I recently saw the Greatest Showman, which is the Hugh Jackman Zac Efron vehicle, which sort of uh, it's a buy it, it's a highly fictionalized biopic of P.T. Barnum's life. But he started the circus that you all know about. When I first saw the movie, after it was over, I I felt kind of like, oh, you know, it's a musical. So there's a lot of singing. There's a lot of dancing. If you just look it on the surface, it will make you feel good because the Mm -hmm. performances are very good. Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron clearly know what they're doing in this space. Mm -hmm. However... um, First things first, P.T. Barnum is an extremely problematic historical figure. P.T. Barnum, uh, I think it was the 19th century that he started this freak show. It was the Antebellum North. And he made his money, partly how he made his money was that he leased a black woman who claimed to be like the, claimed to be hundreds of years old and had been George Washington's slave or nanny or something like that. And put her in a show and charged people to, I don't know, look at her. And he made as much money as he could off her. And then when she died, 
he charged people 50 cents to attend an autopsy of her body to pull her organs out to see if she was as old as she said. Mm -hmm. That is gory and disgusting and grotesque. And when I saw the movie, I, I didn't know that detail at the moment, but I just knew Barnum had a lot of issues with him. I'm not certain why the the producers and the director didn't decide just to tell a fun fictional story about someone who starts a circus. I think the audience would have been forgiving, like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. This isn't P.T. Barnum, because I just don't think he's the kind of person who should be lauded in any way, shape or form. Other than that, Zac Efron. Oh, wow. What a face he's got, huh? Just mm-hmm. chisel that out of marble. Him and Zendaya, who generally I like to look at and I love her in interviews, but she's a little wooden on screen and you put her mm-hmm. and Zac Efron together and honey, Brutal. you okay. get the exact opposite of fireworks. Um, you, get, <laughs> you get like the opposite of a chick flick, like whatever romance becomes after it dies is mm-hmm. really what they were doing on the screen up there. It was, uh, it was pretty bad. Like they were in the scenes together and you were just like, wait, like, I know I see their arm in arm, but are they, you can't even figure it out. You can't figure it out. And lastly, the problem I have with the movie was that, you know, in the beginning of the movie, part, you know, Barnum starts interviewing his freaks for his show. So you get like the bearded lady, you get the tattooed man, you get the obese guy, you get the little person, and you get some black people who know how to dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's their I, list of freaks. Ooh, uh, so the black, yeah, and, is the blackness the freakiness about the people? Yeah, yeah. There's the, the <laughs> black people, there's, there's no peg legs, no glass eyes. You know, <laughs> no <laughs> or long forked tongues. They're just black. Oh, one of the black women has like really blue eyes. So mm. freaky. Um, <laughs> Instead of I um, have problems. Your with, daddy raped I, my mommy somewhere. <laughs> I have problems with that dynamic. And whenever you see something in a movie like that, I mean, if you're not a person of color, like whenever you, whenever I, I'll, be, I'll talk about me. Whenever I see something in a movie like that, I know instantly who the movie's made for, and I just kind of check out. It like goes to the sideline for me. I was like, oh, this movie isn't for me, because like I'm just supposed to believe like, oh, they're just, they're just freaks. Now, mm-hmm. I know people are listening, being like, oh, but it was the 19th century, so they were outsiders, and I was like, outsider, outsiders are different from freaks. Yeah. Look what they do with Outsiders in Shape of Water versus the freaks of P.T. Barnum. It's not the same thing. And even conflating those is very much the problem I'm describing. So I am not going to recommend um, anyone should see The Greatest Showman. What I will recommend is that you go to Spotify and listen to the song This Is Me, which is sung by the incredible Kiala Settle. It's sort of like the anthem of the movie. Also, if you like that song, you like all the songs because it seems like they were all written at the same time, back to back to back, because they all sound the same. Um, but that <laughs> one is really, I think that, you know what? If you listen to the soundtrack, This Is Me, you can tell that was written first. Mm. Don't ask me how. You can just tell that it was written first and everything else was like, well, we need a song for this. Well, let's take the <laughs> chord progression of This Is Me, reverse it, and boom, new song. Oh my God. Um, don't, don't watch it. Don't watch it. Uh, uh, that, that's my recommendation. Living his best life, doing everything he wants to Listen, do. And looking story. fabulous at it too. So. Look, he's gorgeous. God, he's yeah. gorgeous. He's such and a good-looking man and aging well. Yeah, that's the key. Listen up, world. That's how you want to look when you're an older man. Like you're aging. Like you are aging. And people want to fill their face up with stuff. More is like, come on, dude. Like, no, come on, stop that. 
All right. Well, um, I'm going to wrap this up. I'm, I have a bag packed next to me and I'm off to Europe. I'm going to London right. and Paris. Yes. Have fun. So I'm looking have forward to the, the warmer weather over there than the negative billion temperatures over <laughs> here. Um, I had to, um, Air France sent me an email. I'm flying from Manchester to Paris. Oh, and they're like, oh we need your passport. And I was like, why? And I was oh. like, oh, Brexit. Like, you guys aren't the same thing anymore. Oh, that's true. Oh, yeah, I was like, why do you need my passport again? I was like, I've already entered Europe, but I'm like, nope. Mm. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what's going on over there post Brexit. It's going to be fun. It's just red lines and riots. Ah! <laughs> okay. Anyway, <laughs> all right, honey. So take care, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, y'all.